you know, my friends were getting married and they were having families. And I was bedbound at that point thinking, am I ever going to be physically able to be a mother? Am I ever going to have a family? And, you know, it was just, and it was doing all that with people, without people acknowledging that something was really happening much at all, or that, or that it was bad, um, or that injuring your brain was bad. Um, and so I just found the whole experience just really shattering. Um, I felt like everything that I knew to be true wasn't. Um, and I really struggled with that. I had personality changes from the accident as well. Um, and I was a pretty even keeled, mellow person before. So I had anger issues and I had crying stuff and I wasn't much of a crier. And so it was learning to deal with all these new emotions in this body that didn't feel like mine and emotions that didn't feel like mine without much support out of my environment. Normally, if I get stressed, I would I'd run or I'd do yoga or, you know, I, or I'd work harder and this didn't work like that. Hi guys, this is Molly Parker. I am a physical therapist and a post-concussion syndrome survivor. I've been recovering for about seven years and I am here to tell you all that I've learned um, and we are on the Heads and Tails podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. Today, I'm excited to bring you a new perspective when it comes to concussions uh, on this podcast, at least from both a clinical standpoint and a personal standpoint. Uh, We have Molly Parker, who is a physical therapist and has had post-concussion syndrome and a sensory motor disorder for seven years. Uh, she has seen over 70 healthcare providers and, and spent thousands of hours researching on how to really heal herself and, and heal others. She says that she did everything wrong and got worse for over four years and is now trying to prevent you from making the same mistakes when it comes to your recovery from post-concussion syndrome. She believes that, the, that she has finally figured out how to harness the power of neuroplasticity and is hopeful for a second chance at life for herself and you. Uh, So Molly, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast, especially from having your dual clinical perspective and also personal perspective of going through this. And, you know, I had a serious brain injury, but I never, fortunately, I never really had to deal with a lot of these PCS symptoms that many athletes uh, that listen to this uh, go through. So can Mm -hmm. you start off by taking us through uh, the concussion that has led to this uh, bout of post-concussion syndrome? Yeah, sure. Um, And thanks for having me. I, um, so my concussion was in February of 2011, and I one of my best girlfriends had just passed her physical therapy boards, and so we'd gone out to celebrate, and we'd done a night kind of dinner and dancing type thing, and we were out um, on the sidewalk after dancing, and there was um, it was very crowded, and there was a cab driver who fell asleep at the wheel and went into the crowd. Um, I was about 15 feet in on the sidewalk. So he went quite a ways. And just as about, just as I realized that he wasn't stopping, I'd started to turn to run. So when I impacted with the car, I was spinning. Um, and so he hit me and several other people. And then I impacted again because someone else landed on top of me on the hood of the car. Um, and then initially I remember getting up off the hood of the car, grabbing the back of my head because it was really painful looking at my hand and there was no blood and thinking to myself, well, that wasn't so bad. Cause I really thought it was, you know, it was going to hurt. And then there was a woman who was pinned in between the building and the car. And so I stopped to help her. Um, and then once things started to calm down, I went to the bathroom with a girlfriend cause she'd broken her nose. And then I forgot everything that happened. She said, I looked at her and just asked if something bad had happened. Um, and so they made me go to the emergency room. And since there was such a massive amount of people, I ended up spending a lot of time on a backboard strapped down. So by the time I was actually seen in the ER, I was in more pain from my head being pushed against the backboard than I was from getting hit by the car. And then I just felt, I honestly, I felt really lucky. I helped that gal whose leg was crushed and I felt like I'd walked away with only a concussion. Um, and little did I know what that was going to bring. And then I left, you know, the hospital the next morning discharged. I don't think they actually told me I had a concussion. I saw it in the paperwork when I got home. Um, and yeah, and then I just, I felt like I got hit by a car, but I felt very fortunate. And then I slowly 
started to really unravel from there. So that was how I got my, my concussion. Well, that was a very light way to put a very traumatic uh, scenario, <laughs> at least from what I put, had in my head when you were telling the story. Uh, yeah. So were you a physical therapist at the time of this accident? Yes. And so I had actually had my dream job and, you know, I'd worked my butt off in school. And then I ended up at this small orthopedic clinic in San Clemente, which is this little coastal town. So I worked with a woman who was so dang good at what she did. And I would learn a ton from her. And I worked with one of my best friends and I had 40 minutes per patient. It was really my dream job. And so I was kind of on cloud nine at that point. I had kind of everything that I'd worked hard for had come to fruition. And then I slowly started to lose it all. Yeah, well, sorry to, to hear about the accident, but you're now you're kind of, you know, obviously making good of a bad situation. Yes. So it just in retelling your story a little bit, you, you kind of your mm -hmm. immediate symptoms was a bit of amnesia. It sounded like you kind of forgot what happened or wasn't mm -hmm. really sure what was going on. Mm -hmm. But other than that, you know, after getting discharged from the hospital, did you have any other like immediate, you know, symptoms as you left the hospital or just kind of like a headache? Um, I think I was still on adrenaline the day of. I remember her telling me, well, you're not going to work tomorrow and thinking, well, of course I am. And then maybe a few hours later, getting up to use the bathroom and my legs just felt broken. I was actually really pissed at the time that I had I had to x-ray my hip where the bumper had hit and then my lower legs. Um and I was so mad about it because I had all these student loans. <laughs> I couldn't afford the medical bills. And then once I got up and started to try to walk, um, I was grateful that I had those x-rays because they really felt broken. Um, I was limping quite a bit. My left leg drug behind me. And then I ended up taking that Monday off of work. And then I went in that Tuesday, my boss was doing a pain seminar and wanted my opinion and remember thinking, I was so disoriented and so dizzy and so out of it. And it was all I could do just not to fall out of the chair. Um, and I had a really severe headache. And I don't, I don't know what it was. Even looking back, I just don't think I understood the severity. And I don't think I gave it the credit that it was due. I just kept moving forward in my life as if it was going to go away. And it just, I eventually, about two weeks in, I went on a run. And I remember I was doubled over with so much pressure in my head and in so much pain. And then I started to get headaches and those headaches got more severe. And just as I was about to do something about them, they'd go away for a few days and I would put it off. And then eventually it got to the point where I had headaches all day, every day. They were eight, nine, 10 out of 10. Um, and they just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then by the time I finally started to get care, I think at that point I was just so gone that i really couldn't help myself i working in healthcare i you know had it been my leg i would have known exactly what to do but in that state i was cognitively so gone that it was like i just kept going through the motions even though i was barely functioning at home um and it went on like that for two virtually two years all right so i got a few questions off of this so th this injury occurred in was it 2011? I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah right, 2011. So this is kind of like the concussion awareness has kind of began to build some momentum around this time, mm -hmm. but it hasn't really quite been as far reaching as it is today. Yeah. Um, seven years later, obviously. Right. Um, the other thing that I was interested in is you said, you know, immediately after the injury, you had some like, weakness and almost like a foot drop type thing am i saying that right yeah um i so go ahead and i was gonna ask you you know at the time did you you thought it seemed like you thought it was like a leg injury as opposed to like maybe being a connection to the brain and looking back was that like a residual effect of a brain injury it was so and we've only recently pieced that together i initially um obviously had a lot of pain on my left side was because that was where i impacted with the car and i had pain down my left leg and pain down my left arm and i initially thought it was radiculopathy so that there was a disc in my neck and in my back that were irritated and i was getting pain radiating down my leg and my arm um and then i started to get really severe neural tension so anytime i put my arm or leg in a straightened position where the nerve in your arm would be tensioned i would get severe symptoms um where i would be nauseated for almost two weeks at a time 
really dizzy, really disoriented. Um, and then I started to develop weakness and it was so frustrating because I knew it all stemmed from the accident and I knew I'd had the concussion. And at the time I really thought the weakness was from the impact and not from the concussion itself. And I was going around, I was seeing it, you know, it wasn't for lack of trying. I was mentioning it to coworkers. I was asked, I was going to um, physicians and to other physical therapists trying to figure out um, what it was and if someone could help me and people just kept ignoring it. And it was the most bizarre thing. Cause I had a coworker at one point um, try to test my, my ankle dorsiflexor. So could I put my toes towards my nose and I couldn't move my foot at all. And in the neural world, that's a sign of, it could be, um, it could be several things, but that's not something you ignore. That's something you usually take really seriously and look into what's causing it. And it was just, I felt like I was going nuts because everyone around me just acted like nothing was wrong. And I remember going in, my left side started to weaken and going into the doctor and them telling me that, well, maybe it's fibromyalgia and maybe it's extreme fibromyalgia and it's going to be fine. It'll just go away. Or people would say, well, that doesn't happen, <laughs> but you, you could see it. You could see the atrophy, especially on my glute. And so it was just this maddening process. And then trying to do all of that with a concussion um, was really frustrating. And what I know now is that that was part of the concussion. So it was likely a little bit irritated that I had the left-sided um, impact, but it was my sensory motor system was starting to malfunction. And so I was starting to develop a full-blown sensory motor disorder in physical therapy in a clinic that should know better and no one caught it. And it was, it just got right. worse for years and years and years. Yeah. I mean, I'm frustrated for you just with you retelling that story. I can just tell, especially because you're in that clinical setting where you would think that you'd be like in, in the yeah. right hands with people who would, would be able to figure it out. Yeah. Um, the other thing that you had mentioned that kind of came to mind in, in regards to you being a physical therapist and you working in that world and, and going mm -hmm. through this is a lot of people on the podcast who deal with post-concussion syndrome a lot of their frustration kind of stems from the fact that there is no set protocol to come back from a concussion. Right. And in the PT world, for m many things, there are pretty set standard foolproof protocols to mm -hmm. go through to heal from certain injuries. Right. So how was your, was that kind of feeding into your frustration at the same time? Like the, the lack there of a protocol or... Uh, I think at the time it wasn't even like I didn't even get to the protocol because it was truly I couldn't get to anyone who really acknowledged this, its existence. It was I still struggle to articulate it. And I think people that have been through it can um, understand because you've been to so many of those appointments where you're talking to someone and it just feels like you're talking to a wall. But I don't think I was truly diagnosed with post-concussive till I was almost two years in. Um, and at that point, I wasn't you know, my memory was gone. Um, I was having trouble with my speech. My sensory motor was disorder was full blown. I had severe headaches all the time. I never slept. I was barely able to feed and dress myself. I was forgetting where I was. I was forgetting how to put on my shoes. And I had all these severe problems. And then I had all these movement problems. And I kept going to different people and they would just say things like, well, go do more exercise or maybe you're depressed. Just it was Oh, it gets me worked up now just thinking about it. So it really wasn't that I was like, gosh, I wish we had a concussion protocol. It was like, I wish that was that its existence was acknowledged at all, let alone then right. do about it. It was just, yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Yeah. So I, yeah, I was, I guess I jumped ahead a little bit in the, in the process. So mm -hmm. when you said, uh, that it took you two years to get the official diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Who gave you that diagnosis? And did you say anything different to that individual that kind of like sparked something in their head to say, hey, like this is a concussion uh, symptom? No. And you know what's funny is I don't remember the exact time getting it. I just remember around that point, eventually we kind of just were deciding that's what it was. And I was seeing a neurologist in San Diego who um, was meant to be one of the TBI specialists that I'd been seeing for a year um, and just kept dismissing it, kept trying medication. 
Um, for, we forgot to do an MRI just to make sure there was nothing else, um, particularly with the weakness symptoms. We probably should have done that. Um, and then it just got to the point where we decided, okay, that's kind of what it was. I went to see a, a neuropsychologist, and then it came back that, um, particularly in my occipital lobe, that I was functioning below what would be considered um, that normative level. And she apparently recommended vision therapy. My neurologist never told me. And again, they told me to go see a psychologist. And so, and then at that point, I ended up losing my job um, and going home for a little bit. What? Yeah, this is, it's, I, I mean, I could, this is a long, long, I'm one of those patients now that has like these long, long stories. It was so frustrating. So eventually when I, when I left work, they were mad at me. They felt like I could keep going and it was something that I was choosing to do, not something that there was this huge problem. And it was so frustrating because that was so out of character for me. Like I just finished my doctorate. I was active every day. I've worked since I was 12. I've been in sports year round, like just not doing things was not within my character. So I ended up going home for a month. Um, my sister's an emergency physician and I was staying at her house and I would sleep for 16 hours a day. And she said she'd check to make sure I was breathing because I just didn't move. And then I started to kind of turn the corner where I would get maybe 20 minutes a day where I didn't feel like I was in emergency level pain. And then went back to San Diego after a month, told my doctor that I was just starting to feel 20 to 30 minutes a day where I felt functional. And he sent me back to work. And so I went back to work in home health. And of course, as we can all imagine, that didn't go well. Um, I made it a few months before, again, I could barely care for myself. I should never have been driving. I mean, I was working with balanced patients. I couldn't tell if they were falling or if I was. It was really just not a good situation to be in. So about the three-year mark, I had seen as many people as I could think of. I was not doing well at all. I was actually getting worse. My movements in particular were getting worse, and so was my vision. And I started to lose the ability to read and write and I shouldn't have been driving. And then about the three and a half year mark, I finally met one clinician that actually knew what concussions were and she treated them before and she'd worked with several NFL players. And she was the first person that really gave me validation and had any insight into anything that I should do. She ended up setting me up with someone who could work on my movement disorder and at the time I got to him, he said I shouldn't have been able to walk or stand or sit. I had virtually no muscle function, um, but I looked fairly normal. And then shortly after, I, it, I kind of had a come to Jesus moment because I wasn't able to care for myself anymore. And then I moved home. And then my mother took care of me for about two years. About the four-year mark, I finally I met the first guy who did any objective testing on me. And then that was significantly helpful. I finally understood what vision therapy was. I'd never even heard of it. So I started seeing an optometrist and I had virtually every visual problem you could possibly have. Um, and then I slowly, slowly started to dig myself out of a hole. Um, and I then ended up in Utah at a clinic called Cognitive FX where I had a functional MRI. Um, and again, it was very validating. Um, I got a big improvement there. Then we realized that the sensory motor disorder was extremely involved and it was limiting the rest of my vision and my vestibular treatment because my neck was shaking so much. So I, again, went on the whole spree of doctors. No one knew what to do. I eventually figured out the diagnosis on my own. Still no one knew what to do. So I ended up reaching out to a woman named Dr. Nancy Bill, and she does all the sensory motor work for physical therapists, and she does a lot of the protocols. She's the big name in the field. And she was gracious enough with her time to chat with me a little bit, and we ended up meeting at a conference, and she was just going to see if she could help me, see if there was anything she could, you know, point me in the right path. As luck would have it, that conference ended up finishing early. And so she said, why don't you come and share your story with everybody? So I stood up there and I was, my body really shook at that point and my left arm kind of curled up and in and my head would tilt to the side and shake. And I stood there telling my story with a panel of neurologists at my side and then a whole crowd of what was mostly physical therapists. 
And afterwards, a woman came up to me and said, I've seen that before. I treat that. We see it all the time. You should come see us. And so she was at UCLA. And so it was almost a year after I'd been to Utah, I had my first appointment in UCLA, which was a year ago. And I had a full-blown sensory motor disorder. It was one of the worst they'd ever seen. <laughs> and, um, and then once I got the actual right treatment, I responded within one session. And there's videos up on my Instagram where from my neck down, I'm pretty much back to normal. Um, and that was with a year of rehab. And then I'm now at the point where now we're working on my eyes and my face. And then once we get that all squared away, then I should be able to retrain the rest of my vision and vestibular system. And then theoretically, I could make a full recovery if I continue to respond to the treatments. That is a very long Dude, story. what the hell? <laughs> I've, like, I've heard a lot of post-concussion syndrome stories, and I've never heard anything like this. Yeah. I, I, I can't believe that you've gone through all of that. Yes. So, well, I mean, just to go, just to kind of dive back into some of the stuff that you said. Sure. You know, you left work, you know, like that, that's where I want to start off. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you said you worked since you were 12. You're not, I mean, you can't go through PT school and be like an underachiever, no. like someone who's lazy, you know, like you're not that at all. Exactly. So for you to, and you took yourself out of work or? Yeah, it got to the point where um, I think I took myself out and then decided um, my mother was getting very upset and I knew that I needed to go home and I'd known it. I, I pushed it honestly a year or two longer probably than I should have. I knew I just, I really liked my life. <laughs> it was the thought of letting all that go. Like I was, when I had the accident, I was 26. I was really idealistic and very bright eyed. And the thought of letting all that go was just the end of the world. Looking back now, you know, a break's just a break and life goes on. But at the time it was just, I, the last day of work for me was the worst day of my life. I was just devastated. Um, and yeah, so I ended up having to take myself out. And then I think a big part of the reason I went back too soon was because I felt really judged um, because I felt like it wasn't, I have a brain injury. I can't function. I need, I need help. It almost came as what I interpreted as I could be doing things. I'm just not, I just don't want to, I'm not trying. I'm lazy. And that, got to me. I let people's kind of judgments get under my skin. And I wish at this point now, and for any healthcare providers listening, I wish I would have had the backup of just one person to say like, this is, you have a brain injury. It is reasonable to recover from it and to take the time you need to heal. Um, I didn't have that, not even from my neurologist at the time. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel bad that, that you went through that, but it, it also really resonates with a lot of the stuff that we talk on this podcast about that's separate from PCS. Mm -hmm. And that's more of like the athlete identity and the transition to life after sports. And I kind of view your story and, you know, going through PT school, I know how much goes into that just mm -hmm. based off of my work with physical therapists in the past, in the past mm -hmm. and how passionate you guys are about your profession and yeah. to, almost kind of like lose that identity for everything that you've worked for is like an athlete working their whole life and having an injury that ends their career, you yeah. know, in a lot of ways. So I can definitely resonate with, you know, what you were, you were feeling like. Um, but I kind of want to talk about like the judgment that you felt by others. Like, yeah. was this actual real judgment? Like they verbally said, like, to you that we don't believe you or was this something that you kind of conjured up in your head almost like you thought that people because you were almost disappointed in yourself or you felt like you could be doing more than you kind of perceived that other people thought the same thing because I know I do that all the time yeah. like I think I think about what other people are thinking about me sometimes mm -hmm. when that's not even the case at all it's yeah. just something I conjured up in my own head yeah I hear you yeah that story we all tell ourselves um, I wish that it was all in my head, but unfortunately, um, it wasn't ever directly said, we don't believe you, but it was a lot of, um, like when I, I had memory issues and I was in my living room at one point and I remember kind of almost coming to like I was sleepwalking and all the windows 
and doors in my house were open. All the cupboards were open. And my heating pad that I used for my back, because I was in a ton of pain at the time, was in the trash can. And no one was home. And I knew I had done that, but I had no recollection of any of it. And I stood in my living room trying to remember like my name and where I was from and having to convince myself that like this is where I live and this is my apartment and I'm in San Clemente, California and this is my house. And then I couldn't remember like when it was, I couldn't get the year. Um, and I remember going to work after the next day and telling my coworker about it and her just going, oh, that doesn't happen. And then moving on. <laughs> so it was a lot of, I was verbalizing things and people either just didn't hear them um, I don't think they were trying to tear me down. They just, I think I just looked so normal that they just couldn't seem to hear the words coming out of my mouth. Or it would be, you know, towards the end, I would tell my boss, I, I can't read. I can't look at my computer. Um, I'm not remembering my patient's stuff. I'm having to carry around a notepad with me. And I said something along the lines of, can I come and work early for work tomorrow? I don't, you don't need to pay me, but I need to do these when I can think. And I remember her saying no. So it was just, I was verbalizing it and I don't know that they said, I don't believe you, but it was definitely um, not supported. And it was the same for kind of some of the people that I was around. Yeah. And that's, that's tough. And you would think that that's, you know, in the PT world, that's not like a, you, you would hope that wouldn't be the culture, yeah. you know, cause I know like from my own personal, like, yeah, from my own personal experience with, you know, my own injury, a lot of that was due to me just not saying when I was hurt and taking myself out and taking care of myself. Mm -hmm. Like they just progressively got worse and worse and worse and the injuries, you know, mm -hmm. just keep accumulating. And that's kind of the same thing that, that is happening there. Like when you don't have that kind of support, then you, you know, yeah. you push yourself to a point that you shouldn't. Yeah. And you obviously made yourself worse. And I almost wonder how to come at a different point um, in my life. I just transitioned out of school and I was living in a new, I was living in San Diego before and San Clemente is not far, but I didn't know many people there. And I can't help but wonder had I been with, you know, the group of people I'd been with in high school and in college and in grad school, if that would have happened. I think there would have been people around me that would have known me well enough, but I just happened right. in a time frame where I was new to town and I didn't have people that were close to me yeah you didn't you you lacked the the support <laughs> system uh, all right so let's let's go through the point where you had that first session that you actually started noticing significant improvement from and what exactly was that type of therapy and you know what made it so different from what you had uh, tried yeah. before that didn't work. So I think sensory dis motor disorders in general are um, difficult. Um, they tend to be categorized as a software issue, so not a hardware problem. So it's not any structural damage in the brain. It's more how the brain is functioning. And the most common example of that would be someone with um, dystonia. And I fit under the dystonia umbrella, but I wasn't, I didn't quite, you know, match what other people would experience. And so I think we've had such a boom in neurorehabilitation in the last 10 years and the stuff that we're learning that we can actually treat and make changes in um, is, is new. And as you know, it takes a long time for that stuff to get from research into conception into the clinic and then in, especially into the general population. Um, so I ended up meeting this group of therapists and my therapist is the first movement disorder fellow for physical therapy in the country. And she's, 30 years old, smart as a whip, graduated from USC, which is the number one PT school in the country. And so they've developed this whole movement disorder specialty at UCLA. So they have um, a neurologist who's fantastic, who actually has good bedside manner, which is rare for a neurologist. Um, and they work on a really, really solid team approach. So they typically do it with physical therapy. And then they also recommend cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I'd been seeing a psychologist, I think, that's important in any injury, especially when it's prolonged, just done enough chronic pain to know there's always going to be an emotional component. So I'd worked through a lot of that piece. Um, but they, so what they do is I responded very well to what's called visual biofeedback. So I basically had no clue where my body was in space. If there was a hologram of my body, it would have been completely different where I perceived it as to where the rest of my body actually was. So the idea in the simplest terms was to get where my body thought it was in my brain to where it is physically to match 
So what we ended up doing is areas that I would be um, really shaking heavily and have a lot of that really excitatory, like hyperkinetic type movement, we would use a cotton ball actually. And I would let all that shaking go and they would put a little sensory input say we were working on my leg, on my leg, and that alone would calm it down. And then we would match it with an exercise that my brain could kind of di digest. So we would videotape me doing a certain movement and I would hold it still to make it look normal. And if I couldn't hold it still enough, we'd take a video of someone else. And then they'd cotton ball me and I'd watch the video of myself moving normally, using air quotes, and while I shook and I would repeat that like eight times a day. And then we, as I would integrate in one area, then we'd up the exercises. If I had an area that I couldn't sense where my body was in space at all, we would do a TENS unit just to give me a little bit of that tingling feedback to see where I was and then match it with the visual sensory type videos. And we would do that um, typically in weight bearing and closed chain to start. And then we would slowly progress. And we started from my feet and we went all the way up towards my neck. Network. Well, so it was like a, a physical and visual kind of collaboration mm -hmm. in this type of treatment. Yeah. And can you just explain the role of the cotton ball again? I didn't quite grasp that. So the cotton ball is providing sensory input to the brain. So when um, we have our brain has a has a map of our body in it. And my brain's map of my body was extremely skewed. Um, you'll hear people refer to it as like smudging. So instead of when I would get electrical signals to where my finger is supposed to move, they would just go all over the place. Um, it was almost like my body map just had these massively distorted body parts that were all running into each other. So when I was supposed to get a nice, you know, movement pattern in one place, I was getting shaking and muscle contraction everywhere. So with the cotton ball and with the TENS unit and with kind of the other sensory stuff that we would use, we were trying to give my brain feedback of where the actual limb is in space and then pair it with visual feedback as well. So it's sensory feedback with the cotton ball and then visual feedback with the video. Okay, yeah, I get a, a better understanding of that now. Uh, and the TENS unit, that's like STEM? Yeah, like stimu is that like electrical stimulation? For pain, but we were just using the vibrate or the tingly so I could feel where the heck like my shoulder was. Right. And, but that also contracts the muscle too, right? To some degree? There's different kinds. So we had it on a uh, setting where it just felt like a buzzing. So I wasn't getting any contraction. It was just like a buzzing sensation underneath the pad. Right. Yeah. If you like jack that thing yeah. up, then it, then it contracts <laughs> yeah, the muscle. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's what I always went for. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So this is when you started to get better after doing this treatment and that's what and this is called neuroplasticity or so this was um this was physical therapy for a sensory motor disorder and we used what's called uh, sensory motor relearning um most of the protocols were from dr nancy bill the woman who i had originally reached out to just kind of a little full circle moment um, she created a lot of the stuff that we used okay and so to this to that point you had you had tried a slew of different treatment options including the vision therapy and nothing had really changed I all of it. i'd had some change i had gone from um being at a point where i really wasn't sure how much longer i could live through it to kind of taking the edge off so my headaches had improved my speech had improved quite a bit in utah um my memory had mostly come back to normal um i was still you know, headaches, heavy fatigue, couldn't be in crowded environments or any environments for that matter, still couldn't read, write or drive. So I'd had improvement, but none of it was getting me back to life in any meaningful sort of way. Okay. And with this therapy that you did uh, for the movement disorder that was beneficial, how was that connect? How was that connected to the cognitive uh, healing, you know, were you still having headaches even though you were moving better? Um, like, were you still having the concentration and memory issues yeah. or did that all kind of help with this therapy? So my headaches got significantly better and then my sleep got way better because I wasn't like shaking all the time. So my sleep got much, much better, which was great because I hadn't slept well in years. 
And then the tricky thing with the vision is I had that shaking head to toe and every single muscle in my entire body. And that includes my eyes. So in the past, when I had tried to do strength training or tried to do anything um, like that you would normally do, I couldn't hold strength at all because I was basically holding my body really still and trying to overpower the shaking. So I wasn't able to hold any changes and the same went with my eyes so when i would try to do vision therapy or i would try to do kind of that ocular motor type stuff when you're in vestibular therapy it would take the edge off but nothing would really hold and it was because i had those underlying shaking um so we have to get rid of the shaking first and then so that i can actually you know fixate with my eyes regularly before we can then start to retrain the vision stuff so I think had I not developed the movement disorder, I probably would have recovered already is what I would add. Right. That makes, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. All right. So you kind of alluded to this earlier um, and I've, you know, seen, you know, psychologists and stuff after my injury and I, when I was struggling as mm-hmm. well. Um, like, can you just get into a little bit more of the emotional toll that PCS had on you and, you know, and what other coping strategies you kind of developed throughout that process uh, in addition to seeing uh, a psychologist? Yeah. Um, I think as far as the emotional toll for PCS, I think it just shattered me. Um, I think the first three years I was able to, particularly I, I have a really tough time with um, people were really inadvertently awful. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any of them were doing it maliciously. I think they genuinely didn't understand what was going on. And I could explain it till I was blue in the face, but they just really didn't get it. Um, so I think some of, you know, the lost friendships or the people I spent time with that kind of ran me into the ground a little bit and some stuff with family. I just, I really thought if something like that were ever to happen, that the people around you support you, that at work that I would have been supported, that in, you know, all those other areas that people would kind of rally around to help. And that was just not my experience. And I was um, being still in my 20s. I just, I don't know, that was something that just really shattered me. And then when I got home and I had all the difficulties with family and then I eventually lost, um, you know, I lost being really around most of my friends. I couldn't do anything that they could do. I'd move back home. They weren't there. Um, when I did go to see them, they were super supportive, but I really couldn't do much of anything. I was almost completely bed bound. Um, I stopped being able to date. So I haven't been able to date in almost four years. And it was just going through that loss of, you know, my friends were getting married and they were having families. And I was bed bound at that point thinking, am I ever going to be physically able to be a mother? Am I ever going to have a family? And, you know, it was just, and it was doing all that with people, without people acknowledging that something was really happening much at all, or that, or that it was bad, um, or that injuring your brain was bad. Um, and so I just found the whole experience just really shattering. Um, I felt like everything that I knew to be true wasn't. Um, and I really struggled with that. I had personality changes from the accident as well. Um, and I was a pretty even keeled mellow person before so i had anger issues and i had crying stuff and i wasn't much of a crier and so it was learning to deal with all these new emotions in this body that didn't feel like mine and emotions that didn't feel like mine without much support out of my environment normally if i get stressed i would i'd run or i'd do yoga or you know i or i'd work harder and this didn't work like that um so i made sure that i saw a psychologist pretty much the whole time. And I actually, depression wise, I did great for the first three years. I was really fortunate where I didn't have much. Um, But once I really started to lose everything and that um, didn't seem to be turning around, it was really tough. So I've seen a psychologist now, mostly this whole time, which I would highly recommend. I think she's fantastic. And it was just learning how to process emotions that weren't mine. And fortunately, my personality changes have gone back to mostly normal. So I still feel like myself. Um, And it was just learning how to navigate relationships in a way that I never really had before and being better about setting boundaries for myself and holding them, which is not something I was good at. And then ultimately, it was I just had to let go of that whole blueprint of how my life was supposed to be because this was my journey, this is what it is, and I couldn't hold on to, well, I should be doing this right now, I should be doing that right now, 
because that's just not the path I was on. And I think once I did that, that really helped me mentally continue to be able to do all the therapy that I needed to do to get my life back. Um, yeah, I found therapy extremely helpful. Still do. Yeah, I think that part where you said where you're trying to like follow the br- the blueprint that you laid down for yourself mm-hmm. and how it wasn't working that mm-hmm. way. That is like, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Like that's something I struggle with for a really long time. And even today, sometimes I still like feel bad that I didn't get to play college football and do a bunch of stuff that I yeah, wanted to totally. do. It's like, I think that's part of the problem when people go through this is, yeah, like I didn't, this is not what I pictured, yeah. you know, when it lasts for as long as you've gone through it. Yeah. It's tough. Um, so can you kind of make the connection for me with, uh, cause I know you talk a lot about neuroplasticity on your site and on your social media. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the connection between your therapy and the, what has worked for you and the area of neuroplasticity and how that can really help individuals with PCS. And like I said before, you know, your symptoms are stuff I've never heard of anyone having like a movement disorder mm-hmm. to the degree that you've yeah. had from a concussion. So how, how common is that? I, I don't think we really know for sure. I have a hunch that it's a little more common than we think. Um, I think the tricky part with mine is that I can hold it in. So they call it suppression. So I could hold those motions in and make myself move normally. Um, and I have a feeling that there's a lot of people that are holding theirs in and aren't and don't realize it, particularly in their necks. Um, and that that might be a reason that they're not recovering the way they ought to be. And when I have therapists who've learned how to pick it out, they're seeing it fairly often. I mean, that's all anecdotal. So I really, you know, I don't know. Um, but I have a friend who works at, down in San Diego with some veterans. And she's like, I just keep having people saying the same kind of stuff that you were. She's like, I think there's a sensory motor component. What do I do? Like no, those kind of things. So I think it might be there a little bit more than we think it is, but I hope that most people are not going to be as involved as I was. I think it was just cause I'm an idiot and I kept pushing through it. You know, until it got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, and then as far as neuroplasticity, hey, I'm 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 still that idiot too. Sorry, so. <laughs> I said I'm still that <laughs> idiot too. So it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and then as far as neuroplasticity, I mean, the cool thing, if there is a cool thing about PCS, is that these are functional injuries. So when we have a severe TBI, we have structural problems and we have structural deficits. But with concussions these are all functional injuries. So they're all a software issue. And if we realize that neuroplasticity is basically the brain can change um, with the right input, that opens the door in my mind to full recovery, no matter who you are and no matter how far out you are. Um, And that was something that I always believed this whole time. And when people would say, well, this is just your new normal, this is it. I would just think, no, if that's not how these injuries work, we might not know how to do it well yet, but we certainly know that it's possible. Um, and what we're seeing now is a lot of people that are really putting together the pieces and realizing that those kind of things are possible. And when it comes to vision therapy and the physical therapy and vestibular therapy and anything you can think of, it's really a matter of, can we match the right person to the right treatment in the right phase of their recovery and give it in the right dosage so that they respond. And I think if we get those factors going, then I don't see why these people can't recover, even if they're two, three, four, five years out. I mean, almost all my recovery was after five years. And, you know, these are things that technically we used to say after two years, that's just it. And you're kind of set in stone and that's how the brain works. And we're finding out now that that's just not true. Um, so if you get someone who's really dang good at what they do and they can match the right person to the right thing, I think we can see changes at any point. That's what's that's what makes nerd out yeah, as a physical therapist because yeah. I think that's super exciting. Yeah, you're, the, the common theme with all my PCS mm-hmm. interviews is that you know just don't give up. Yeah, you know? and you're a perfect example of that. If you don't give up, like the, even five years out, you're you're still mm-hmm. getting better. So that's uh, you know gives people a lot oh, of yeah. hope. And kind of while we're on the topic, 
you know, I know you talk about this on your social mm-hmm. media. Um, how should yes sufferers approach building a treatment team and making sure that they have access to all the different treatment options to figure out what works yeah. best for them? I think what's tricky, particularly now, is we definitely have people with the ability to do this. It's just a matter of finding the right one. And I think when it comes to building your treatment team, um, concussions are, you know, they're a good part of your brain. So they're going to always cover multiple professions. There's never going to be just one person. If you just see physical therapy, that's it. And you're fine. It's usually going to be several people working together to help your recovery. And so part of that is finding a group of people that can do that. So I usually tell people, if you have um, a concussion clinic in your area, you have a major hospital or you have like, you know, you're by a university of Pittsburgh or something like that. Those are really great places to start because they tend to have multidisciplinary teams that can do a full evaluation on you and then really pick out what continues to drive your symptoms, who treat once, who treats what, and then where do you start so that you're getting the most effective order? Because there's definitely a way to order things where you're going to get better um, outcomes. Um, And then if people don't have that in their area, there's a Canadian company actually called Complete Concussion Management, and they have a certification course that teaches mostly physical therapists and chiros, um, but I think MDs and I want to say ATCs can take it too, um, that gives them a better comprehensive look. Um, If that's not available in their area, then it's usually, you know, hop on Google, see if you can find someone who says they treat concussions, give them a call, make sure that they have advanced training, that it's recent, um, that they work with other individuals in the area, and that they feel comfortable treating your symptoms. And then you can have that person do a full evaluation, figure out what do I treat, and then who else does this person need to see and help them set up their team with people they already work with in the area. Um, I think where people get tripped up is they'll, they end up with this really scattered care. They'll see one person and it kind of helps. And then they'll go see another person and it helps or maybe not. And they end up with all these scattered treatments Whereas if you can get someone who understands how interconnected these are and how to kind of put it together for you and help you set up a treatment team with people they already work with rather than you doing it on your own, that tends to be much more efficient for people. The tricky part is not every town you know, in the country has that. And so if that's the case, um, those people would end up being travel candidates. So there's a few programs around the country that do shorter stints. So if you're more... Um, especially if you're short on cash, because these can just drain the heck out of your bank account. Um, Like the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, they will do a full comprehensive evaluation on you. So you have everything that you need to treat why and how to do it. And then they send you home with an exercise program and people that you would need to treat. So that's a good way to make sure you're getting everything comprehensively done. Um, And there's also some intensive centers around the country. Um, They are really pricey. Um, so it's a matter of matching yourself to the right one and doing your due diligence before you go to make sure that you're someone that's going to respond to that type of care. All right. So you're saying go to a hub, like a concussion management yeah. hub, uh, and kind of go from there if, you, if it's something that you've really been struggling with for a yeah. while. So no, that's, that's yeah. great advice. And pro- hopefully it will save you yeah. time in the long hopefully run. Hopefully if you can get someone who's good and they work with, say, it's a PT in there in their clinic, but they also work with an optometrist and they also work with a speech therapist and they're all comfortable and they're in your area, that's great. But I think people get really, they run into people or they run into situations where they just don't really have that care or no one really knows how to put it all together. And if that's the case, then going somewhere where everyone's under one roof can be really helpful. Okay. Um, what role did nutrition play in your recovery or if, if it did at all? And, you know, what are some, if, if so, what are some potential food options that can benefit uh, PCS? Yeah, food played a huge role in my recovery. The first time someone had me change my diet, I was almost three years in and I had such a significant drop in symptoms that I didn't even realize it was from my diet. I thought this other therapy I was doing at the time, maybe that was finally the key for me, but it was all diet. So one of the things that can drive post-concussive is inflammation. And if you're someone that's contributing to your symptoms and you change your diet, you will see a decrease in your symptoms. 
Um, so that was huge for me. Eventually it got to the point where I feel I realized I had a gluten allergy and I had a dairy sensitivity and I ended up, um, being on a full anti-inflammatory diet, but that has dropped my symptoms significantly. And then when we talk about neuroplasticity, one of the first steps pre-neuroplasticity is just general cell health. And one of the best ways to do that is to change your diet. So you're getting rid of any inflammation, anything that's going to hinder you along your recovery. Um, so yeah, diet is huge. Everyone should be on it at day one of their concussion through recovery. So you're saying that that for you was no gluten? For me, no it was, uh, I did the full anti-inflammatory diet. So it was no, anything that I had um, sensitivities to. So for me, that was gluten, dairy, and corn. And then it... How'd you know that? Though? Um, I knew that I had a gluten problem like by the end of college, but I didn't want to admit it because I liked pizza and beer and I didn't want to deal with it. And then I eventually made it to a functional medicine doctor who was like, you have to get off gluten. I'm pretty certain you have an allergy. We can run the blood work, but you're going to need to get off it. And I did. And within three months, it made such a big difference um, in like the stomach issues that I'd had before, but then also in my, all my concussion symptoms were, I, I mean, I went from like a nine to 10 out of 10, almost constantly to like a six just with diet. Um, yeah, the so diet was huge. And then you asked, what else do you do? So it's, um, so it's no sugar, no refined carbs, um, lean meats and those lean meats should be, um, you know, grass fed if it's meats, wild caught if it's fish. Um, and then you're taking out any artificial sweeteners, alcohol, things like that. It's basically a whole foods clean diet and then you're adding in lots of fresh veggies and nuts and fruits and um all the good stuff all, all the yeah all the, the good stuff it, does that affect your social life as well though like that's a lot of stuff that you can't uh, eat so like do you ever have like a cheat, cheat day every now and then or? i have a hard time letting go of cheese so every now and again i'll, I'll have like We'll order a pizza or something like that. The nice thing is both my friends are pretty health conscious, um, especially when I go back to like the San Diego area. Everyone's pretty crunchy and almost everything is dairy free, gluten free in that area. So that's pretty easy for me. And then now I'm in Washington and we're fairly hippie out here. So it's actually pretty easy for me to eat well. Yeah, I mean, that, that actually it's a good point that you make because you know, you you put yourself in a good mm -hmm. environment, you know, like you live in an environment where that's like the norm as opposed to yeah. being weird. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. you> know? <laughs> now, earlier in our conversation, you talked about your struggle to sleep and that had a lot to do with your movement disorder and how mm -hmm. you couldn't, you know, control yeah. shaking and, and stuff like that. So, you know, what role has sleep played in your recovery since you've been um, it's a bit huge. I, I mean, I, gosh, I had years where I was sleeping excessively. I could barely stay awake. I would fall asleep, like sitting up. Um, it almost reminded me of like my stroke patients when they would have low arousal levels. It wasn't even, I was tired. It was like, you could see my nervous system just shutting down. And then I went through a period where I didn't sleep at all. And that was miserable. There was no breaks in the days whatsoever. Um, and my fatigue was so bad. I could, I would take an hour break in between putting on my pants and my shirt. It was just super severe. Um, so what ended up working for me apart from getting the stuff treated, because obviously those made big differences was I did, I followed sleep hygiene and then I made a sleep schedule. So I would go to bed and I would wake up at the same time every night. Um, and then if I was having a hard time falling asleep, which was usually the case, I would start with progressive muscle relaxation. So you're starting at your toes, going all the way up to your head, contracting one muscle at a time and relaxing it. Um, and then about eh, probably five years in, I started using the 20 minute rule where if you're, you know, you're in bed, you've done all your routine, you've done everything you're meant to do. And if you're still awake in 20 minutes, you get out of bed. Um, go do something boring, like lay and try to read or try to listen to a book on tape. And then once you feel sleepy again, you get back in bed and you do that basically till you fall asleep. And I think those techniques were the most uh, helpful for me.
Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good to, to keep in mind. And even if you don't start yeah. from DCS, it's, if you a lot of people struggle sleeping, yeah, totally. sleeping anyway. Um. All right. So I know I'm jumping around here a little bit, but we've talked a couple times about the extreme costs yeah. of kind of figuring out the solution to your PCS symptoms. And that's a case. I mean, I was at this uh, headway foundation Mm -hmm. happy hour a couple weeks ago. It was a fundraiser for, for it, but it's basically like a post concussion syndrome, you know, organization. And these people were like flying all over the country, going to this doctor, that doctor. I'm like, how do how do you afford this? You know? So like, how were you able to afford it? And do you have any tips for people to kind of keep some of the yeah. costs down. As far as tips, if you can get somebody who can put you in the right order first, that is going to save you so much freaking time. Because I did like thousands of dollars worth of therapy that weren't going to help until I addressed my movement problems. Or if you're someone and your neck doesn't know where it is in space and you're trying to do vision therapy and your brain's having to pick between is my neck center or are my eye center? not going to go well. So if you can get someone who really knows how to order your stuff, like outright, that's going to save you a ton of time and energy and money. Um, And then for me, I, you know, I was out of school. I had huge loans. I was super broke. I had, I was working two jobs at the time, um, trying to pay for student loans. And after the accident, my friend said, you know, you should see this lawyer just in case something happens and you end up needing financial compensation, you should just go. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't like the Sue happy culture. I'm very lucky. I don't want anything to do with it. And I eventually went and I'm super glad that I did because I would have been so screwed. So what ended up happening was the man who hit 20 people was very poorly insured. Um, So it took about three years to see anything from it, which really was eventually like my first month of treatment. And that was pretty much it. But what happened in the meantime is the treatments that I would need, my lawyer was helping me pay for in hopes that eventually we would get that back on my car insurance policy uh, because I had an insured driver. So we eventually did get that back. So that was a huge, 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 huge piece for me. I honestly, I think it would be so difficult if you didn't have that because that was a big thing of that I was able to get some of my medical bills repaid. And then eventually, you know, I lost my job and I couldn't feed myself or drive and I ended up moving home. And so I live very frugally. Um, and I've learned how to be able to get meals and make meals super cheap. When I buy places, I will use every deal I possibly can. The places I luckily that I've needed to go you know, I've been to LA quite a bit now and it's a hundred dollars from Spokane to LA and my aunt and uncle live there. So I stay with them. So that's kind of helpful. I tend to stay at Airbnbs more than hotels. And if you let them know it's for medical reasons, most people will give you a discount. Um, also, if you have extended stays, make sure you ask for a discount. Most clinics, especially if you're traveling or you're going to do like intensive weeks, they'll oftentimes do a discount. And just, I make sure that I ask. Um, I would order certain things around my deductible. Um, i trying to think what other money saving type stuff. I basically just lived really, really cheap and almost everything went to medical bills. I, I think moral of the story is don't be afraid yeah. to ask. ask for, I think. Yeah. Ask for all of it. Be sure to double check with your insurance, yeah, you know, cool. see if there's anything you can work out, especially when you're traveling. Some airlines will give you discounts if you're traveling for medical reasons. Um, some Airbnbs, well, some hotels, well. So just make sure you're asking for all that stuff. Yeah. So what got you into PT in the first place? Because you were a physical therapist before all this even happened. So did you have? Did you were you an athlete growing up? Did you have inju- other injuries that kind of you know opened your um, mind? I was to super the active field? growing up. I think my parents had me on skis before I was two. Um, I played soccer year round through my junior year of high school, skied, I scuba dived um, when I think I got certified when I was 14. So I was super active. Um, but then once I started going more towards college, I 
I originally thought I was going to do um, psychology. And my sister was in medical school at the time. My mom's a nurse. My dad's a dentist. And I knew I loved the medical field, but I didn't feel like medical school was a fit. Dental school wasn't a fit. I had, you know, I'd worked in his office when I was 15 and I don't do spit. Like I can do blood and guts, no problem, but I can't do the spit stuff. Um, so I thought I was going to go do psychology. <laughs> and then about halfway through my sophomore year, my or my advisor said, you know, you're picking a lot of kinesiology classes. Is that something you're interested in? And it was something I really didn't even know about. So I ended up starting to take a lot of that coursework. I really loved it. I then did an internship with a guy in Arizona. And anytime I would ask him a question, he was so excited about what he did. And he would go get books and he'd highlight everything. And he'd have, you know, anatomy models. And he'd show me why everything was happening. And all those patients loved being there. And it was such a great experience. I was like, I want to do this. So um, I ended up going through the physical therapy track. And I've been really, really lucky with the clinics that I've been in because I've worked with some just therapists that really, really love what they do. And it's been um, something that really drove me towards the profession entirely. Love it. Cool. Yeah, I was just just curious how you got, got in there. Everyone, every PTA yeah. like has their own story. So, <laughs> um, all right. So as we kind of wrap up the, mm -hmm. the conversation here, I have a few more questions for you. Uh, what are some things that families can do to help loved ones uh, with PCS? And we kind of talked a little bit about this throughout the episode uh, in terms of the importance of your yeah. support team. I think the most important for thing for family is you don't have to necessarily understand what they're going through, but you do have to believe them. I think it, one of the hardest parts was feeling like I had to explain and validate myself or that it was Groundhog's Day. And I kept having to explain that, yes, the next day I still have all the same issues I did the day before. So I think it's just a matter of believing them and supporting them. I actually made a PDF of the top 10 things family can do, families can do, and they can sign up for that on my website. That's all free. It was all the stuff that was helpful for me and my family and that my parents made sure to and told me to include. Um, and then I think the other piece was it's really difficult when people look so normal. And I think that that mismatch between how bad they feel and how normal they look can be tough for people actually hear them when you're having conversations. So usually what I direct people to is um, there's a book called You Look Great, which is written by a post-concussion patient. And then there's one called It Goes to My Brain, which is a personal memoir of a man who had this long haul with PCS. And generally when people tend to be able to read what's happening and then start to pick out some of the phrases that their loved ones are saying to them too, they tend to do better with understanding that there's more to it and that there's something wrong. Um, and that can be really helpful for family. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll link that PDF or link your website up in the, in the show notes so people can sign up for the, the newsletter yeah. and, and get that. And also those, I'll link up those books uh, in, okay. in the show notes for this episode. Um, another, another question, uh, how do you know when you're in the clear from you know, post-concussion syndrome yeah. uh, or like healed? Like yeah, I'd like to healed? relate this to like a typical injury, like, so say you broke your ankle and after maybe two weeks, you're feeling way less pain. You wouldn't take off your cast then because the bone hasn't healed. So instead, you know, you'd let the bone heal and then you would get x-rayed to make sure the bone had recovered and then you're clear. Concussions kind of work in the same way. You know, you have your symptoms and then after maybe two weeks or so, you might be feeling better, but that doesn't mean you take off the cast and play. That means your brain still needs time to heal. And typical concussion recovery time is closer to about three to six weeks. So in lieu of an x-ray, we use a battery of tests. So we're using, there's not just one test that is ever going to clear you. So if someone ever clears you, just pass or fail off one thing. That's not right. It's several tests together. So it'll be things like your balance and can you get on a treadmill and really pump up your heart rate without getting symptomatic? Um, can you do neurocognitive testing? Can you do dual tasks, meaning can you... Um, be walking with head turns while you're counting by twos. Um, is your reaction time back to normal? All those things cumulatively, once you pass those asymptomatically, then you would be cleared from your concussion and, you know, quote unquote, fully recovered. All right. Yeah, I think it's easy to push too hard too soon when you're feeling good, especially when you don't oh, yeah. a limp or anything like that. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
All right. Where can uh, people connect with you on social media? Uh, I am on Instagram and Facebook. I'm on Instagram quite a bit more. And then I'm also on LinkedIn, all under Molly Parker PT. And then in all of those places, there'll be a link to my little landing page where you can sign up for the community. And so you'll get um, a little something based on your role in concussion recovery. And then that's where if there's any major updates or anything people know about, I usually send it out through through that. Yeah, and you have great information on your social media. You provide great resources and um, information and, you know, just tips for people who are going through PCS. And yeah. it, it means a lot from someone who's going, you know, has, has gone through it and is going through it currently. And yeah. you have the clinical expertise, too. So it's a, a must follow. And I'll have all that up in the show notes awesome. uh, as well. And what what are some things that people can expect to see when they act, when they follow you? you? You cover a lot of different areas. Yeah, I mean, it's all the stuff I wish I would have had. I don't think I even met someone or knew that another person was like me for like three years. And it was super, super lonely. So mostly it's connecting people to all the resources they would need so they don't end up like me. Um, and it's meant to be for people with all sorts of problems. So if you have visual issues, the colors are meant to be calming for the brain. The font is meant to be calming. There's videos if you have a hard time reading. And it's typically a couple videos a week. Um, we feature a patient story every week. So someone who's going through similar to what you might be going through is featured every week. And people seem to really like that. And then it's all the anything from sleep to diet to different treatments to how to get to your right healthcare provider. It's all things concussion, six days a week. All right, perfect. And uh, yeah, the consistency is, is commendable. I know how hard it is to, to keep pumping things out week in and week yeah. out. So you do, you're doing a great job. It's the riding. Uh, last question. Me. What? It's the riding for me. My eyes what? still hit me. So I do them in big batches. Okay. Uh, all right, last question that I asked uh, most of my guests is uh, what's your definition of toughness? Um, I think toughness is someone who not only keeps getting back up, but they're able to do it and keep their ability to be empathetic and compassionate and vulnerable when they need to, and they keep their humanity kind of during the worst of times. And just keep persevering. I like it. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great definition. And I have to thank one of my or one of my longtime followers on Instagram for connecting me to your story. And I'm so glad that she did uh, because, you know, it's a awesome, this is going to be a great episode for anyone, you know, suffering with PCS. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your story. And I can't believe all the stuff that you've gone through and yeah. uh, I, I could commend the fight in, in you. It's, it's, uh, it's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me.